Hello, welcome back to Scripture Central. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson. And I'm John, or Jack Welch. And we are here to talk about some wonderful chapters in 2 Nephi, 11 through 19, as part of the Come Follow Me. And I just have to tell you that I have never enjoyed these chapters more. When you have to teach something, you study it a little bit more detail. But I hope that this year and some of the things that we can share with you will also help you appreciate these chapters more than any other year. They are beautiful. And the book of 2 Nephi is powerful in its testimony of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful way to learn how we can come closer to our Savior, how we can become more holy, and how we can see the prophecies that were given before for our day and age. Lynn, that's beautifully said. And Second Nephi is challenging. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes it can be daunting, but never fails to uh, reward those who will engage it uh, fully and directly. And especially, I think, using the keys and the understanding that Nephi gives us helps readers today to really understand and get the most out of these chapters. And I've been impressed as we've gone through this material again, how it all comes together. And I hope you'll, as all of our readers will, will, will see how these pieces fit into Nephi's prophetic view yes. that we've talked about before and how everything becomes clear. He says these things are simple, plain and precious. But that's for him. That's for him. <laughs> it, le it leaves it up to us. Well, I also feel like last, um, when we began Second Nephi, we said there was a reason why he separated his two books. And I feel like um, not only is it for poetry and beauty and, and message, but these chapters are meat. This is for those who are ready to have higher doctrinal, um, religious information. And chapter 11 is organized in such a beautiful way that it allows us to see what some of that organization was. Stepping back and looking at chapter 11 as a whole, it's a short, it's a little short uh, chapter, but you are the chiasmus man. Have you seen it gently as a, as a loose chiasmus all the way through from beginning to end? Yes, indeed. And, and Nephi does have a way of saying things twice. <laughs> yes. And he believes in two or three witnesses. And so the duplication is... Intentional. It, it is. It's intentional. It accentuates. And so when you see, and there are some things, point them out, yeah. that Nephi mentions twice here, and they need our special attention. So in chapter 11, I will liken these words unto my people. And then you continue on, and he talks about my children. And then he says, I saw my Redeemer. And then we get the beautiful sections on, um, in verse 3, about the need for the three witnesses. Actually, two and three. Um, that more witnesses are needed. And we'll talk about those three in just a minute. But as the chiasmus continues on, I love this. He says, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truths of the coming of Christ. And then this getting closer to the center, he says, the law of Moses was given, but it was all given of God from the beginning as a type of Christ. It's all the typifying is what he used. I, I think of it as a cookie cutter or as a, um, there's consistency as we look not just with the law of Moses, but even the lives of the prophets. In fact, that word type 
is where we get typesetting. And you have an individual key or a, a letter in the font where you had to set the font one type at a time. So we, we think of typing now as using a typewriter, but in their world, a type was also a seal or a stamp, something that could be stamped out multiple times. And so the image of Christ can be stamped out on each of us. And there are other things that, like Moses will do, that will become a type and a shadow of things to come, as King Benjamin will say. So this idea of typology is a very powerful one. Uh, Nephi sees in Isaiah a pattern. It's a pattern of the plan of salvation. It's a pattern of God's plan for all of us on this earth. And the elements in that temple and sacred-related pattern, the covenant, play out over and over again in our lives as we are righteous or not, as nations are obedient or disobedient, and we can see these things recurring. Patterns over and over. And I also feel like it's not just um, they're po- focusing towards Christ, but just look at the symbolism of the temple. The altar represents Christ. The veil represents Christ. And those are types. The, they're all types of Christ. And Every single detail in there. Even the priest is acting as if he were the anointed one. And he has been anointed as well in order to serve in the temple. But the prophet Hoshea, was it chapter 12, verse 10, I think, um, where he says, the lives of the prophets are to typify of our promised Messiah who's coming. So the fact that Nephi has that as the center of his message here, look at everything I'm going to teach you, look at everything in the history of the world to point to our Savior. He's using beautiful poetry. He's using the lives of the prophets. He's using the lives of his people to point to Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah. And Nephi makes that central point emphatic as he then restates those points in the opposite order in the second half of the chapter. So the chapter, you wonder, why would chapter 12 break off where it does and, you know, begin? It's the Since 11 is such a short one. Yeah. But the, uh, the chapter 11 is a nice unit and logically breaks there. The second half coming out, um, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the Christ that should come. And then instead of the, um, there were three witnesses, now he repeats Christ's name and he becomes a witness for three times. Beautiful. And then as he concludes, again, to my people, and I want you to liken them unto yourself. So it's a beautiful little chiasmus. And I hope in all of Second Nephi, you take the time to get out your pencil and start circling some of these things that are repeated or highlight them. But there is such power in seeing the beauty of the literature here. And the parallelism was the poetry in the Hebrew language. Wonderful. And you might wonder, where did Nephi learn how to write this way? One of the things that Isaiah is good at is writing with chiastic structure. And Nephi must have been taught how to read and write and As a part of that training, he would have understood and have been taught the stylistic and structural way in which you tell a story or you give a text. You have to realize that in the ancient world, they didn't have periods. They didn't have paragraphs. Uh, So you had to use internal structure like chiasmus in order for people to be able to tell where one idea ends and another begins. 
And worse than that, they don't even have capitalizations. So you really don't know when something's ending and beginning. And without the vowels, words look the same. It's a very difficult task. So I'm really grateful um, that we have so many Old Testament texts in the Book of Mormon because we get a different view. And we also can say, this was the word of God then, even though it went through hundreds and thousands of years of hands of scribes, it's still God's word. Do you want to talk about the three witnesses in chapter well, yeah, who 11? Who are these three witnesses? Well, let's open and, it up. It's verse and three. And it's interesting that all things shall be established by two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy. Exactly. This is a part of Jewish law. And it wasn't just given for purposes of establishing evidence in court. But Nephi says God also abides by the law, which I think is interesting. God will give us two or three witnesses. And we will learn in chapter 27 of 2 Nephi that there will be three witnesses for the Book of Mormon as well. So this principle of the three witnesses is a type. And I think it's also a type of the Godhead. It has to be. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and they bear witness of each other, we learn in 3 Nephi 11. So they are also involved in this testifying. When you are a witness... You testify. And he tells us who these witnesses are, starting in chapter 11, verse 2. I, Nephi, would write more of the words of Isaiah. So he's mentioned him a little bit, paraphrased a verse or two, but he says, I want to talk about Isaiah. My soul delighteth in his words, and I will liken his words unto my people, and I will send them forth. And then he goes on and says, he verily saw my Redeemer, even as I have seen him. And my brother Jacob also has seen him. So I think the three witnesses are eyewitnesses of Jehovah. Then that's a wonderful way to put it, because witnesses have to testify of what they know, what they have seen and heard. Otherwise, it's what we call hearsay or secondhand evidence, which isn't as strong. And by the way, the word to be a witness, at least in Greek, is related to the word to be a martyr. Oh, dear. Well, people are willing to bear testimony on pain of death under the law of Moses. If you testify falsely in court, say in a case where someone might be put to death for the violation of the law, and you bear witness falsely, and that's discovered, you will receive the punishment that would have befallen the person Oh dear! had your testimony not been discovered as false. So as a false witness, the death penalty could apply. So being a witness was a very serious matter, and I think we're right. And I think Nephi thinks we will get this without a little coaching. <laughs> but to me, as I read his words, I know that Nephi is speaking absolutely seriously. His eternal life is on the line, and he's not just casually talking about things that he hope will happen. He's certainly not filling up pages with Isaiah. That's he right. has a specific mission, and he told us back in 1 Nephi, my mission is to bring people to Christ. You even brought a scroll. Do you want to show it? Well, yes, if you'd like to see that. I'd love to see it. This, what, what we have here is a photographic replication. It goes on to 27 feet. I don't think you want to see the We're whole thing. We're not going to unroll at all. 
What you're seeing here is a photographic printing on parchment, on leather, of the full text of the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters. It's found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is a copy of it. If you go to the shrine of the book in Jerusalem, this is basically what you see there. And uh, so this is a copy of that, but it shows you uh, the way it was set out in columns. And what's, I think, really significant for us and for the Book of Mormon is that when I was born, this wasn't known. And many people doubted that if we only had a copy of the Isaiah text in Hebrew, we would have a much different text. And that's because before this scroll was found, the oldest Hebrew text of Isaiah was the Masoretic Hebrew, which comes a thousand years after Christ. But the question was, can the Greek be trusted? This was discovered in 1947. People, of course, worked on it. It's been translated and many things uh, studied about it. But what is interesting is that there's almost no difference between the Masoretic Hebrew and this Hebrew, wow. which is this is more than 1,100 years earlier than the Masoretic. So that ends up being a great confirmation of the accuracy of the text that we've always known of Isaiah. It also confirms the accuracy of the, the brass plates, that there were more than there were more records there available and that we had them written down. And it's not just something that came up later, that Isaiah was in the brass plates at 600 BC, at least the chapters we've got certainly were. I'm fascinated with how many times um, Isaiah is actually cited in the Book of Mormon. I feel like it's very significant that he's Nephi's favorite author, that he's the Lord's favorite author. And if he's hard to understand, I feel like one way we get to know someone is reading the books that they cherish the most. I think I can understand Nephi better. I can understand the Lord better when I understand their book better. And their favorite is Isaiah. And I think it's because he's so Christ-centered. Yeah, with, without a doubt. And think of it for just a minute. When did Isaiah die? And where did he live? Isaiah lived in Jerusalem. Where did Nephi live? In Jerusalem. And Isaiah dies sometime shortly after 700 B.C., and Lehi is born less than 50 years later. What does that tell us? Lehi's parents or grandparents? Would have known Isaiah. And he would have been the prophet at the time. Exactly. He's, he is the main prophet. Others that we think of, like Daniel and Ezekiel. No, they haven't, they haven't been born yet. They're not there yet. So the collection of prophecy is much smaller. At the time of Lehi, yeah that we might have thought. And so what might have been on the brass plates is predominantly Isaiah. There's some Zenus and some Zenoch and maybe a few others. Isaiah is their king, their prophet. Yeah, and to have this body of revelation, especially about the future, what is going to come? A lot of the uh, initial prophets solved current problems, but Isaiah's vision is massive. It extends from the very beginning to the very end of the millennial times and the day of the Lord. And Isaiah was valued, I think, in Nephi's world, much as uh, we as Latter-day Saints value Joseph Smith. 
Oh, interesting. When we were born, it was only about 100 years after Joseph Smith's martyrdom. Right? Maybe for you, Jack. <laughs> well, I was born in 1946. Yeah, so. that definitely works for you then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point is that Isaiah would have been valued the way we value Joseph Smith. And also, Joseph Smith's revelations came a piece at a time. Some of them are very short, some are longer. The first collection, the Book of Commandments, and then the Doctrine and Covenants was published. But in a way, the Doctrine and Covenants is a scrapbook. It's just a collection of various revelations. Revelations that came to Joseph at different times. There's very and... little in the way of introduction, telling us almost nothing about why the revelations were given. It's the same with Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is a scrapbook. Mm, interesting way to and, look at it. And some of these revelations were given when Isaiah was younger and some when he was older. And so he refer he and so Isaiah will return to certain themes that have shown up in earlier visions or earlier prophecies. And so you have to go through and rearrange Isaiah by topic. To understand it. And obviously it's been edited and things have been moved around. But before we get into the text, can I just talk about the prophet for a minute? Yes, let's do that. So he served under five different kings. And um, I've got a chart here of where he falls in that last few years of the Judean kings in the southern tribes and where Lehi comes in here. Um, the world still has the northern tribes and the southern tribes during Isaiah's time, um, at least his early years before the northern tribes are taken away um, when Sennacherib's attack comes in in 721 from Assyria. But it's helpful when I'm reading Isaiah to look at some of these charts and see exactly where things fit in. I also am fascinated that in the Book of Mormon, we have one third of Isaiah quoted. That's quite a bit. But 60% of those verses are changed. The brass plates had a significant differences. And so um, you have 201 verses that are very consistent with the King James, but 277 that have dramatic changes in them. Um, I also think that when I'm studying the book of um, Second Nephi on the Isaiah chapters, it's great to do with a partner. And I have somebody reading Isaiah and someone reading Second Nephi, and I have on my scriptures brackets what is added and what isn't. And I think it's significant to see the brass plates had some very important doctrinal differences than we have in our current King James. And some of those differences, even though they are all only subtle or minor appearing, yeah. a single word, though, can change the whole direction like of a particular not. passage. Does that ever occur, Lynn? <laughs> oh, yeah, over and over. We'll get to it as we go through it. But as we talk about the text, I appreciate, Jack, your book on charting the Book of Mormon that gives us these wonderful diagrams of which times Nephi and the other prophets in the Book of Mormon are actually quoting from Isaiah when they're paraphrasing Isaiah, and who is it? And I'm fascinated to say it's not just Second Nephi. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and... What you're referring to are charts 96 and 97, which anyone can find. Uh, go on the uh, Scripture Central Archive and just search for charting the Book of Mormon, chart 96, and up will come a PDF of this page, and it shows in two long columns 
direct quotations of Isaiah, and they run from 1 Nephi to 3 Nephi. Some are in Mosiah. Of course, Abinadi will quote Isaiah, but there are quite a few in 3 Nephi as well. And it looks to me like most of them are only parts of the chapter. That's correct. So we only have portions. It's almost like he uses that as a springboard for commentary. Yes. Sometimes it's, it's just one verse. I'm also fascinated to see on your chart, where in the book of Isaiah do we have the same chapter repeated over and over? And it's fascinating to see. Chapter 52, you were just mentioning, repeated 17 times in 17 different places in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, sometimes quoted and sometimes paraphrased. Yes, but very important chapters. And these are the chapters that talk the most about our Savior, the coming of the Messiah. I, Nephi is so consistent on what he chooses, as was King Benjamin and Abinadi and even our Lord in the chapter that he gives. Everything focuses on testifying of Jesus. Exactly. Now, these charts leave it up to you as the reader to go through and see, now, what is he talking about here? But one chart will help you if you want to just go in Book of Mormon order and pick up all the places where Isaiah is referred to, quoted or paraphrased. Chart 97 goes in Isaiah order. So if you want to see which chapters in Isaiah are quoted, which ones are included and which ones are excluded, which I think is... Why do you find that significant? Well, I do, because when I go and look there, there's more historical. They don't apply to the latter days. They apply to his time. 36 to 39, they're not there. Yeah. Because they're not relevant to Nephi's place. Nephi says it's important for people, if they want to understand Isaiah, to understand the regions and the people and the events that Isaiah was involved with. But what Nephi is pulling out are the things that have more eternal value. And he's talking now to his posterity, his living children and grandchildren, and he's writing... And to us. He says he's he's including them for us. Exactly. But he's not thinking... uh, He says, to understand this, you need to know those things. Well, I know those things, he says, and so I can quote this and use it and help you understand it. I feel like one of the things that is most helpful for me is to look at our Isaiah chapters with a lens towards the temple. Uh, Margaret Barker once said, the temple and its rituals were at the center of Isaiah's world. And Isaiah is not only just living during five kings, but he's living in Jerusalem. And he's right there next to the temple. And what he's, temple did he have? Solomon's temple. <laughs> he does. Yeah. He has still Solomon's temple with all that was originally designed. It's the archetype of the temple. And the laws of obedience and sacrifice and the holy steps and progression. Nephi knows this as well. And before we jump into chapter 12, I want to just give a few ideas that I use. And I know Nephi gives us ideas as well. But these are messianic prophecies. They're prophecies of the last day. And they're very poetic. I find uh, this is used before, but Isaiah is the Shakespeare of of Hebrew as we have in English. And you've got to read it as poetry and look for these parallels in order to find the deeper meanings. Now, we should say when you're using the word poetry, you don't mean poetry quite the way we think of it. Okay. Okay. I don't mean rhyming, of course. That's right. Yeah. 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 But what do you mean by him being the Shakespeare? Uh, How about vocabulary? Does Isaiah have a big vocabulary? (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. And Shakespeare did too. He knows how to use words. He's a wordsmith. 
And his, and his analogies, he's constantly likening things unto it. They're just beautiful. And Isaiah is able to paint word pictures. Oh, yeah, you're right. I think that's what yeah. poets actually create, are images in our mind where we have enough detail to be able to see ourselves, what he has seen and what we need to see and how we can see the Savior. So I think seeing him as a poet in that sense is a real gift. And in the ancient world, Homer, of course, was thought of as almost a demigod. Because he could use words so well. That well. And it was one of the muses, a divine influence for the Greeks that would allow people to speak eloquently, accurately, but inspiringly. And so we have to pause. We have to, of course, regret that we can't read Isaiah and understand all the illusions. You can't even read Shakespeare if you don't know Elizabethan England. Yeah, I got to have my Oxford English Dictionary there. And as we're going through, I think maps are helpful. I think charts with the kings are helpful. That's why I included that one there. I also find, in addition to looking for these symbolisms, that the parallels, the repetition, really becomes part of the poetry in the ancient world that makes it come alive to me. Don't give up. <laughs> no, don't give up. <laughs> don't, don't get to... Chapter 17, this is Isaiah 7, and say, I'm not getting this. Keep reading, because Isaiah will bless you with a great prophetic experience. But let's dive in now. We don't have much time to go through chapters 12 through 19, but there's a flow to these. There's a reason why he's put them in here. You've told me in the past, Jack, that you see rhythm to this. You call it something like a prophetic view or something? Well, we did talk earlier about Nephi's prophetic worldview, and he divides the world into four stages, or the prophetic view. Uh, and Isaiah will follow those, and Nephi will use that prophetic worldview as he interprets Isaiah. And the, the view is helpful to remember. First of all, he knows, Isaiah knows, that there will be a destruction of Jerusalem. And the destruction is repeated in almost every one of these six chapters that we've got. But God has made promises, and those promises will be kept, and the Jews will be brought back, as they will be from their first exile into Babylon so that the promise of the coming Messiah can be fulfilled. And they're all types also of the last days that Isaiah says. These are just types of the Lord's second coming. That's right. And then stage two for Nephi is realizing that when the Messiah comes, he will not be accepted by all people. And as a result of that, there will be an even greater scattering and that the house of Israel will be scattered throughout all the world. But there is a promise that the Lord's hand is always outstretched, and he will somehow reach out. And the way he will do that is through the Gentiles. And this is the third stage. Whenever you see the word nations in the King James it's translation... Always, it's always Gentiles or foreigners or something. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly referring to the Gentiles. <clears throat> and so stage three is... There will be a day of the Gentiles when God will preserve enough things and will prepare a way that 
the gospel can eventually be brought to all the world, and the culminating event of the Day of the Gentiles is coming forth of the records, including especially the Book of Mormon. That will then prepare the way for the final culmination, which is stage four, the, the preparation for the coming of the millennium. Okay, with that, let's dive into chapter 12, Isaiah. I've got a couple of favorites here. Um, He starts out by saying, And it came to pass in the last days, when the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. That's a plural. Plural. It's not just one temple on Mount Moriah. And also, it's a different time period. And it shall be exalted above the hills and the nations, plural again. And what is the word nations you just taught us? Gentiles. Gentiles. So the Gentiles will flow into it. It's not just a temple for the Israelites. And then in verse 3, And many people shall go and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. And walking is not just with your feet in the ancient world. That's right. It's your your whole behavior. It's living. It's the covenant path. Because we have a temple, because we have the house of God, we will live to be able to approach it, approach entering into the presence of the Lord. So Isaiah begins with a broad prophetic view, speaking of where this is all going to end. Yes, he starts at the end saying, there will come a time when all will be worshiping God on his holy place, in his holy house. And he's going to backtrack and say, so how's this going to happen? Where did we come from? Why are we here? (laughs) (laughs) Sound familiar? And the rest of chapter 12 is just on this destruction of the proud and the wicked and the wealthy. And then chapter 13 in 2 Nephi, which is Isaiah 3, refers to the destruction of Judah, Jerusalem, the daughters of Zion. And then the next chapter, 14 and 4, Zion is cleansed. And then in 15, we have the destruction of even the Lord's vineyard. And then... Out of the blue, chapter 6 comes the vision of the throne of God, or chapter 16 in 2 Nephi. And then we get these two interesting chapters, the messianic types of the prophecies um, that are intermixed into this historical typology that we've talked about. And we'll end in Isaiah chapter 9, or 2 Nephi 19, on these beautiful messianic prophecies. So this is sort of an overview of where we're going, and we'll just touch a little bit on some of these chapters. Well, in chapter 13... And we get a description of the extremities. Uh, this will be a cat- catastrophic destruction of Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. It's horrific. And, you know, and as, as we live in our modern world today as well, we can also stand in fear of the catastrophic powers, uh, the, the magnitude of weapons today, And the magnitude of natural disasters. Of what can occur. Interestingly, in chapter 13, he also, though, specifically points to the destruction of the daughters of Zion because of their pride, their emphasis. Let me just start here. Verse 16, chapter 13. The Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, you know, this this image for pride that they're, they're putting themselves before other people. Walking and mincing as they go. To me, that's women wearing stilettos, but I don't know what it means. You know, they they prance around as if they're proudful. Um, And they make a tinkling with their feet. 
Therefore, I, the Lord, will smite the scab and talks about how he's going to bring them down. And I feel like this is not just a message for Isaiah's time. This is so important for us to realize that Satan's lure of fashion and money and pride and and attention to the wrong things, our life is so needed to build the kingdom of God. Let's prioritize the things that matter and not the things that you can buy with money. Absolutely. Lynn, what you're modeling here very well is the method that a person needs to use to actually understand Isaiah and to read Isaiah. You have to go carefully and slowly, and you have to try, as Nephi says, to apply it to our day, whatever your day is or wherever you are. These are universal lessons. And if you're asking not just what did he mean, but what might these words mean to me? And how can I benefit from the warning that I feel the Lord is giving me personally? I don't think Isaiah was talking as much to the leaders as to the general people. Interesting. Chapter 14 also has some beautiful little chiastic parallels. And I just want to point out one or two. Let's look at them. This one starts in chapter 14, verses 2 to 6. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth excellent and comely. And then we come to the center point here in verse 3. They that are left in Zion and remain in Jerusalem shall be called holy. And I see this holiness all over these Isaiah verses, as well as in Second Nephi on his own. But holiness is the sanctification of the saints. It's, it's, it's our goal. And he's really beautifully intertwining it here in his parallels. He says in verse 4 that the Lord washed the filth of the daughters of Zion. You know, we've repented. We've, we have left our ways of the world. And God purged the blood of Jerusalem. And then coming out of the parallels, we now see the dwelling place on Mount Zion. And he uses the beautiful image from Moses about the cloud by day and the pillar by night. He's thinking of the temple. It's always temple-focused. You're right. Those who who come back or those who retain, uh, will be they'll be sanctified. They'll be holy. Yeah, because they've gone through repentance. And they are now holy. there are ordinances involved here. They will be washed. Yes, and that's exactly what he says. In and they five. will be purged. What does that mean? They'll be cleansed by fire. Right. And we believe in the baptism by fire, that the Spirit is the cleansing agent. Exactly. And so they will be cleansed not just physically, but spiritually. And that comes right here at the, uh, like you say, in the emphatic structure of this little prophecy about even though things are going to get bad, and he knows that Israel is going to be taken captive, he knows that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, but they will come back. And they will have another chance. But Lynn, you mentioned that chapter 6 talks about Isaiah's vision. Yes, the throne theophany. Where is that happening? And why, uh, why does Nephi include that chapter? He didn't have to include that chapter. Again, well, again, it's coming unto Christ. And Isaiah 6 is my favorite chapter in all of Isaiah because he's seeing the throne of God. And the, the descriptions there of the angels surrounding the throne with their six wings are so beautifully symbolic. And I go back to section 77 where the Lord taught Joseph Smith, the wings represent 
power to move. This is section 77, verse 4, power to act. And so if the wings are covering their head, their eyes and their ears, you know, their mouth, they have power. And then they have the ability to fly. And then they have the ability to extra power on their feet. These angels have extended power. And then, of course, we learn about God himself in this vision of the throne. I love Isaiah 6. I think he included it because it testifies again of Christ, which is his reason why he has Isaiah in here. And had Nephi seen angels? Oh, and had Jacob seen angels? You know, we have our three witnesses of him again. Yes. And had Joseph Smith seen angels? Yes. Very important. God works through his messengers, which is what the word angel means. So that's chapter 16, this beautiful. Does Moroni quote Isaiah? Oh, yes. He does. How does he know Isaiah? Interestingly, I think when Moroni comes to visit Joseph Smith, that first time he quotes Isaiah. There are 11 places where... Moroni will quote Isaiah as he is instructing Joseph about what will happen and what his mission will be. He quotes Isaiah. So how does Moroni know Isaiah? Either the brass plates or Nephi. He knows his stuff. And after all, he had a while all alone to memorize them. So (laughs) I don't know how many books he was hefting around, though, as he's trying to hide from the Lamanites. I don't know, but I'm sure he rehearsed that speech before he gave it to Joseph. (laughs) Probably (laughs) checked his footnotes. Yeah, he did have a few times. But no, but I think that shows how important Moroni, clear at the very end of the Book of Mormon, realizes that it's all grounded in these prophecies of our Savior. It's not just Lehi and Nephi. It's, and it's Isaiah, Isaiah it's, and Zenos and the whole prophetic worldview. The chapter that I want to spend our ending on is chapter um, 18, where he starts talking about the temple again. 1814, he shall be a sanctuary. So he's talking about Christ. We're going to be sanctified by Christ. And then Christ becomes this sanctuary. And the sanctuary is actually the Holy of Holies and Holy Place. It's not the whole Temple Mount. It's not all of Solomon's Temple. It's just this sacred space. That's another type of Christ. But it's a stone of stumbling for some people. It's a rock of offense for some people. It's a snare, he says. And then in verse 16, bind up the testimony. And you just showed us an example of their scrolls and their witnesses seal the law among my disciples. And then in verse 17, I will wait upon the Lord, hideth his face from the house of Jacob, but I will look for him. Behold, I and my children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and wonders in Israel. And then he goes on to talking about dwelling on Mount Zion. I think this is a temple text again. It's the vision of where this can go. And as we bind up the testimonies in our hearts, I think it's to have... um, the Spirit of God with us, directing our lives. This lesson, of course, ends with chapter 19. And I think, Lynn, it would be nice if we ended our session right now by looking at a couple verses in chapter 19, which are the most famous uh, of all, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be built upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there is no end. And what a way for us to end this week. Remembering, as you mentioned earlier, all the different names and titles and functions that our Lord Jesus Christ will provide for us. 
He will provide us with counsel, with wisdom, with power, and his name. He shall have all these names because he will have all of those attributes and characteristics. Of course, Handel made this indelibly memorable to us. Through the music of the Messiah. (laughs) Uh, And these words and phrases also will be picked up by uh, Nephi as he and later prophets in the Book of Mormon remember that there will be a son that will be born and that that son will be a special son, a son who in the pre-existence said, not my will, but thy will be done. And Lynn, I'm so grateful for Isaiah. I'm grateful that Nephi has brought it to us and we'll see more as we go on in the next week or two uh, with our Come Follow Me study, that this book is really aimed at all people, which includes us, which means it's a book for our time as well. Oh, I think so. And our testimony is strengthened as we read these chapters looking for Jesus Christ. He is there. And his hand is still stretched out. And may we feel his arms around us. And as you approach your scripture study prayerfully, may you feel the Lord's embrace. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 